Well, kia ora koutou, katoa everyone and welcome to the Hoon on the Kaka and it's a special one today. Of course we've got Peter Bale back to chew the fat on the things that have happened in and around New Zealand and the world this week but as a special guest I'd like to introduce Rodney Jones, an independent economist based in Auckland now but has spent a lot of time working all around the world, in particular in China. And for those who follow the uh, ins and outs of the uh, COVID world, has been very active in helping all sorts of people uh, model uh, what's going to happen with uh, COVID. And uh, Peter and I have both uh, spent lots of uh, great chats, time having great chats with Rodney about uh, life, the universe and everything. Rodney, welcome into the Hoon. Yeah, can I play? Fantastic to see you, and um, Peter, take it take it away on on what sure. we want to so start Rodney, off. I'm going to, I'm going to, so let, let's let's just be clear with the lovely audience here that um, Rodney and Bernard and, I, Bernard and I have got to know each other a little bit, uh, really in a sense. I think Rodney and I are both, to some extent, COVID refugees in New Zealand. Although he's also a refugee from from the Maoist Xi Jinping, who will. Uh, we'll talk about as well. We, we're going to let, um, not let, we, we've invited Rodney to take part in the, because Rodney, like us, is a polymath. Um, only in his case, he's a genuine polymath, whereas I am more of the bullshitter definition of polymath. But um, Rodney's uh, uh, an extraordinary economist and advisor to some of the world's biggest hedge funds. Um and has a really interesting perspective on China. I think we'll probably almost certainly talk to him about inflation, possibly including house, house price inflation in Hoon Bay. Um, and what we're going to talk about most, though, initially at least, is COVID and the development of Omicron. Bernard's going to talk a little bit about the politics of that. Uh, and I just also want to be clear, Rodney um, keeps it, keeps. Uh, himself under a little bit of a bushel sometimes, wisely, because um, uh, being a bit of a tall poppy, there's quite a few people with chainsaws ready to slice it off. But he did get the Order of New Zealand uh, in 2021 for his advice to the government uh, about how to manage COVID, his modelling. Um, so even if Susie Wiles says that he is, she didn't say just an economist, she just he's an economist, what would he know more or less? I mean, I'm being slightly rude about Susie and saying that. Um, Sounds like you're being rude about economists, actually, there. Uh. Oh, yeah, well, anyway, <laughs> but it, is the, it is the dismal science, as they say. Uh, but, yeah, economists and journalists have a lot in common and a lot to answer for. But um, he did get the Order of New Zealand, and he was also instrumental, I think. In, I got the Diligence Award. The, the Diligence Award. Award. Is that for trying the, trying the, hardest? Yeah, exactly. is, 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 yeah. Forgive me. I actually took that off the your order of New Zealand is for the big people. Yeah, well, you, it's it's. I think that's the you're on the it's the entry level, um, and you're on the way to the other one as well. Um, now, Rodney, you've I'm aware um, have done some recent modelling. You you went a bit. You and your team at Wigram went a little bit quiet on COVID for a little while publicly, and we'll deal with that too. But you've got some forecasting, I think, or modelling rather, coming out shortly, which you're going to publish. Um, I know you don't want to give us the full detail, but maybe maybe tell us a little bit about where you think. Omicron is going to go for those of us on the call, please. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we, we've talked about China already, and I kind of take data seriously. And to me, in a, in a, in a, in a democracy, the reason I've been so outspoken about the use of data during this outbreak is in a democracy, we use data to, we get the, you know, the, the state generates data so we can um, monitor our elected representatives. Data is independent of governments and administrations. 
And, and what upset me last year was that the way modeling was used to establish a narrative to kind of scare people into getting vaccinated. And, and to me, that kind of hurts us now because in a sense, what we have with Omicron is a real pandemic turning. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't had that yet. And credibility of data and credibility of modeling is, is incredibly important. If you've kind of shot your wad, so to speak, and you've used some aggressive projections, which were never going to turn up to establish the narrative you wanted, then you no longer have modeling mm. that's credible. I mean, um, I mean there, is an, there would be an argument, I suppose, Rodney, politically that the, and I think you're referring in particular to the Sean Hendy uh, modeling, which suggested that, that 7,000 people might die of Delta, um, which did scare the shit out of us all and did get us off to go and go and have our vaccines. So maybe there was a political element but, to that, but, the but presumably he published that in good faith. But the problem is that um, it's a it's a boy cried wolf situation, and you can only do that once and get away with it. And I think the government and the prime minister, uh, from my uh, perception, having been at that news conference and then watched her comments about modelling in, in the uh, after that, I think there are many in the government who realised that press conference was a mistake. Not only mm -hmm. was it um, unusual for a beehive theatre at press conference to have a scientist beamed in in a huge screen that dominated the um, Prime Minister at the lectern but also um, essentially it when you when you stand up there next to the Prime Minister in the Beehive Theatre in effect you are joining yourself at the hip to the Prime Minister in the eyes of those TV cameras and all of those journalists there and in the same way that we've seen with Ashley Bloomfield that he has become indelibly joined at the hip to the Prime Minister, that um, limits some of your options down the track. And I, I noticed that after that uh, uh, Sean Hendy thing, we only saw it once. And also, uh, in, in the most recent uh, discussions about modelling, the Prime Minister has run a mile from trying to either use them or to put them out in public simply always saying there are very wide ranges and you've got to be very careful how you use them. So I think I think that was a one-off, um, which in retrospect, a few people realised was a mistake. What, what do you think? So yeah, so what we're doing is we think modelling is important and we think we need to have something to guide us forward. I mean, Chris Hipkins insulted weather forecasters today <laughs> um, by saying that COVID modelling was like weather forecasting. I think weather forecasters are far more sophisticated than COVID modellers. So I would be insulted if I was at NIWA this afternoon or the Met Service. Um, but, you know, we kind of do the best with what you've got. And, and so that, in a sense, is, 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 is what we've tried to do. Now, what we're going to do next Friday, and we're kind of excited about this, we've started sharing. So what we've done is we've gone back, we've um, implemented the DP TPM model, we, which is the controversial one, so people can look up how they got the seven. That's, the, that's to, to Punaha Matatini. Yes, right, from last September. Yeah. We're also going back and doing a retrospective on the Delta, so we can understand what happened in Delta. And then we're going to have our own Omicron model outlining kind of a plausible scenario. Now, we're going to put that up on GitHub next Friday. Um, it'll be accessible. It'll come with an app that people can play around with and see how sensitive these models are. Because if not used properly, it's a little bit like um, the problem is you can use a model 
to as your vehicle to express your view, where you impose your view on the market, mm-hmm. the outcome you want. And that's is it, the is it Would it be fair to say that the um, Sean Hendy to 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 uh, Punaha Matatini uh, model that predicted the seven thousand deaths that you that your what you post next Friday may um, knock a few holes in that idea. Well, no, but we'll post it. It's just based on assumptions, and we think the assumptions around, particularly what we call TTIQ, kind of track, trace, mm-hmm. isolate, quarantine, that in New Zealand that was really effective. And when we look at the Delta outbreak, what seems to have given us the low numbers was, you know, the rising vaccination through that outbreak and the effectiveness of our TTIQ. Mm-hmm. And that's what they missed. And, and so, what are your, no. can you give us a hint about where your, where, where your forecasts on, or sorry, forgive me, modelling on Omicron is heading? Because we've had some really interesting interesting work from the Auckland DHB on, on modelling of this uh, and, and a couple of epidemiologists. Yeah. What's, where, where are your numbers heading yeah. to at the moment? So, so this is what we want to do. We want to kind of build the model and kind of give the keys and step back. And the specialist can drive it because the... the the, to get there in the long way, you know, two years ago was a unique thing. We had a coronavirus. Most, uh, you know, outbreaks of flu. Mm-hmm. This time we had a coronavirus. This was unique, but we had SARS. And you could see, you know, the original wild type was quite easy to model because it was slow moving. It was a seven day, what we call generation time, which is from one person being affected to the other. The R value was very defined, the R naught. And so you could model it quite easily. What we've got with Omicron is a more classic kind of virus that runs fast. Mm-hmm. It's hard to model um, where you can get one person saying 5,000 cases a day is the peak and another saying 50. And, and so this is a lot more messy. And so we want public health specialists to really to drive this rather than physicists or economists mm-hmm. or data scientists. Or journalists to interpret it necessarily. Yes, yeah. So, but on, on, on our model, we've still got work to do, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like a flu outbreak. Mm-hmm. So we may get five or 600 deaths. We can get from depending on the model. And, and when you say five or 600 deaths, do you mean, do you mean during what we've seen overseas to be a kind of uh, 12 weeks, 12 weeks period no, of, of peak trough? But yeah, we get an intense wave and then you get a long wave at the end. Yeah. And we don't know, we'll have to look at Australia and see how that long wave ends. Um, but, you know, and so you can get a million cases, you can get one and a half million cases, you can get 500,000. So the sensitivity, the, the, this is where it's kind of silly to throw one numbers out. You kind of have to live the journey. So we do two, the, the approach we prefer is what we call shining a torch in a darkened hallway, just mm-hmm. trying to see what's going to happen over the next week or two. That's what we're still doing. That's our preferred yep. model. Because I think when, when we just just as as headline headlines, which is which is unfair of me to do to you, but just to pick up a couple of things you said, I think that you said the last time we, we spoke, you look at your it, it could be five five hundred six hundred deaths, and about one and a half million taste cases in total, or was that one and a half million hospital admissions over the period of the no cases? No, 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 no. Hospitalizations are way down. Yeah. So if we look at like. Uh, Australia, I mean, hospitalizations are tracking at like 0.4%. Mm-hmm. Now, with our Delta outbreak, it was 4%. So hospitalizations are down 90%. But it will still be, a, you know, 0.4% of a big number is still a big number. 
So yeah, how do you? So, so how, we, how, we might get we, we might get sorry we might get about a third of the population having a case, and well, around we don't no no well, yeah. no we've got to be careful we don't it's not a prediction transmission yes we don't understand yeah. their transmission New Zealand's very dispersed the dairy farmer sees one person a day and that's the Fonterra guy picking up his milk <laughs> or you know if he doesn't or his money in fact yeah <laughs> um, New Zealand's different. And we saw that with Delta too. New Zealand had a very unusual Delta outbreak. So we are different. We are well vaccinated. We have a strong societal commitment to public mm. health measures. So I think we just have to be open-minded about the path. We are now in the kind of, we're in the takeoff phase right now. So we have models that are predicting we'll get to a thousand cases a day over the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, it's going to be challenging for us. Do you think that our hospital? Do you think? What's your sense of how the hospital system would handle a thousand cases a day, knowing what we well, estimating what we think is might be the hospitalisation rate and um, and how the spread of it might go. Yeah, well, in Australia, what's happening and what's what's amazing is that ICU rate is less than the case fatality rate. Mm. So people are not getting really sick. With Omicron, they may end up in hospital, but they're not getting really sick. So, you, you know, the um, the ICU rate, say in New South Wales, is down by more than ninety percent, down ninety five percent. So, so Rodney, you, you mentioned the importance of of uh, TTIQ, of test and trace. Yeah. Given that test and trace uh, will presumably be both overwhelmed and also much more difficult, other other than other than scanning in, presumably maybe much less PCR testing, much more um, rat testing eventually in this. How well is New Zealand placed to, to I mean, the TT, TTIQ uh, modelling that you use must be much more variable than it was under when, TT, yeah. when uh, test and trace could go. So the eye, the eye becomes more important. And, and there's a question of, you know, what happens if people get refuse to get tested? So, which is a good question, because what's the point if the system's been overrun, what's the point of getting tested? And that's the shame that we don't all have rapid tests at home. So some people will stay home. So what we do in these sorts of outbreaks, which is like, let's say, in India, um, when we're modeling the outbreak in India, we use the positivity rate, or South Africa, the outbreak in December. So what you end up with Omicron is um, a positivity rate of around 25%. Well, we were arguing back in September we wouldn't achieve elimination because the positivity rate among one subset of community in New Zealand was 1%. Mm -hmm. You know, when we looked at Māori and Pacifica, the positivity rate was 1%. So to achieve elimination, you want to be getting below 1%. You want to be getting 0.1% positivity. Well, in this outbreak, we're going to be having 25% positivity rate. So we may do 4,000 tests a day and get 1,000 positive. That means... There's many more cases in the background, behind the scene. Yeah. I mean, how, how are you feeling at the moment uh, about um, how it's going to go over the next two to three weeks in terms of whether our hospital system can cope and whether the decisions made in the last couple of days about the border uh, will will allow us to get through it without um, our hospital system being overwhelmed? Yeah, so we, I, I think, again, this because the hospitalization rate. So as I said before, the hospitalization rate was 4% with Delta. This time will be point, um, 0.4. So 
So you have a thousand cases a day, you'll have four people being hospitalized. Mm -hmm. We don't expect to hit a thousand cases. Right now we're looking at a thousand cases sometime around the 17th for New Zealand nationwide. Sometimes, sometimes depending which model we're using between the 13th and 17th of February. So we're in, we're, we're in the takeoff phase now. What we saw in kind of South Australia, ACT Queensland takes a couple of weeks to get going. And about day 14, you kind of take off. Well, we're in our kind of takeoff phase, mm -hmm. 209 today. Um, you know, models like 240 tomorrow, 260, 390. So we're going to see bigger numbers. Um, let, let me ask you a question, Rodney, just on the sort of basic principles underlying this. And it, and it is a relatively simple question, but, you know, we've all become epidemiologists and modelers uh, and total experts on uh, on on COVID and all sorts of things, let alone um, uh, aerial uh, aerosol spray and so on. Um, what are the, what are the fundamentals of this word modeling? As a, because I mean, I, I've been trying to be careful not to call it a forecast. Um, you know, just as I do with polls and stuff, not for them, not necessarily being a forecast of how elections will work. But you're really dealing with data and then extrapolating potential outcomes from that, right? Okay, so there's two types of modeling, and I don't like using forecasts, they're just kind of projections. No, no, no. The path so one is the short run, and this was, um, we, you know, one of the fortunate things back in 2019, we were moving back to New Zealand, life in Beijing had got much more difficult under Xi Jinping, you know, time was up, um, had, had decided to, to move back. And in July 2019, I hired a biostatistician from the med school. Who was I always wanted a South Indian math genius to be part mm -hmm. of it. I finally got one. <laughs> um, and you know, Jay is from Kerala and is, is brilliant. And I felt really guilty for six months having taken her away from the med school. And then this turned up. Um, and in his PhD, actually, ironically, Michael Plank was one of his supervisors. So um, in his PhD at Canterbury, ha had done kind of similar sort of work. Um, and straight away found the literature once we were dealing with Wuhan. And that's how we got kind of started mm -hmm. on this. And what we decided at the start was not to do the big structural models, the sort that TPM do, but to focus on the short run dynamics and just look kind of one week to four weeks ahead. Because I'm deeply skeptical um, of data and modeling and the, you know, my, um, my father was fortunate enough to study at Canterbury under Karl Popper in, in the late 40s mm -hmm. wow. or mid 40s, the University of Canterbury. And so I was kind of brought up from a young age, you know, about Karl Popper and false ability. And then ended up, of course, working for George Soros. And, and so kind of deeply skeptical forecasts. Deeply skeptical because there's so because there are so many other variables pressing because on life them. life is that, suddenly that, uncertain. Yeah. yeah. Uncertainty is the key feature of life. Which is what makes it so exciting, and it's, it's actually also what oddly we just a slight digression to what someone something Bernard and I were discussing last week is that, and, and you can discuss this if you want, but people uh, in our reporting people would often say, oh, such and such is priced in, and in my experience, things like war, climate change, and pandemics are never priced in, no matter how much they people say they are. It's the that the re, when the reality bites, it always has an impact. Yeah, and it's just dealing with that fundamental uncertainty. And so that's why I like like looking, keeping the horizon short. And that's our preferred modeling. We're still doing that. We're doing that for this outbreak. Just there's, there's models that emerged from SARS 
um, that allow you to look kind of a week or two ahead mm -hmm. and try and project the path of the epidemic. So that's quite that's, re that's, that's our preferred modeling. Mm, yeah. So that's quite reassuring, uh, Rodney. Um, if there's potential for four hospitalizations a day, uh, then that's something we could handle uh, because. You know, those numbers that have been thrown around have been a little frightening, you know, thousands of cases a day, but four hospitalizations a day and the yeah, much better yeah, performance. We get a peak, yeah, and then when, you, but then when we do the structural model, you know, that is called the SIER models, then you're trying to, that's the other form of modeling. And when Sean Hendy quoted a 7,000, that was the modeling he was doing. That's more structural. And what you're trying to do is, is recreate in the context of a model what the whole pandemic or the whole epidemic phase will look like. Now, when we do that, we can get 6,000 a day, five or 6,000 a day, and that will be 20 hospitalizations. And you're saying at the moment that that is, that is in a sense, there's too many variables between, between your short-term modeling and that for you to hang your hat on it. Absolutely. We have yep. no confidence at all, in fact, in that longer-term modeling. But it's, what we like is it gives a tool, and this is how people use it, and, you know, it'd be interesting even for teachers to use it once we get it up next week, mm. is to go back and look at, like, the Delta outbreak and see, try and replicate our Delta outbreak. What makes these even special? Why are we different? And a model can help us do that. Mm. How so, big a factor do you think compliance is what makes us special? Oh, enormously. Enormously. And social buy-in. Mm. Um, and so we're pretty, you know, and it's been kind of rough for the government. Um, and we get the negative stories. As a, someone who spent a lot of time in South Asia, I was kind of upset. We can talk about this. Mm. Um, the, the journalist from Afghanistan, I was appalled by At her behavior. The way that, yeah, the way the story was framed. Yeah. Yes, well, she, uh, she's, she's also, Asia. I mean, it's, it's also far be it for me to criticize a female, a woman reporter who is obviously very brave and very, very clever. But she also appeared to be almost taking credit for the predicted announcement that just just Ardern made yesterday about the opening. You know, it was just like, oh, they finally well, listened. Modern she, she may be right. I have this issue with that, more about about the Taliban. But anyway, but I, I digress. Yes, I'm not sure the Taliban's. Well, as 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 somebody who lives with Bernard pointed out, the uh, anyway, I'm not going to criticise how she was no, dressed no. Uh, or in ways that the Taliban might not be totally enthusiastic yes, about. Yes. So, so um, I've, that's fantastic, uh, Rodney, to to see some of the flesh and bones underneath these numbers. And I, I come away from this a looking forward to next Friday when when these numbers go up on the, well, the models go up on the GitHub. That sounds like a, a an awful lot of fun for for people who are into that sort of stuff. But also. Just getting to play with these tools and and see them gives you a lot of trust and confidence. And it's interesting, there's been some research come out of Denmark in the last six months or so, which shows that the countries that trusted their own population mm. with the the you know the slightly uncomfortable truths were the ones that kept the social cohesion going and did better in the end uh, in dealing with COVID. Yeah, and that's, I, I segued a little bit, but that's kind of what the point I was getting to is we just need to keep it together. We can't let the negativity now. We're facing our most important test in a way, and we're starting to squabble. Mm. Um, we still kind of have to keep our eye on the ball. We've got a very sharp wave to get through. It's going to be stressful. And what we've done on the whole, and, and, and again, even with our booster rates, you know, again, we're a little bit behind us as we were with mm -hmm. Delta, but we're not too far behind. 
Yeah. Mm. Well, well, just going back to ancient history, like about two months ago, three months ago, when Delta emerged in South Auckland, you were quite critical, uh, certainly to me, of the government's role in that or the government's inability, maybe the DHBs and possibly the health ministries, inability to have fully forecast that and to have seen what would have what would happen when it went into a group where you had uh, housing problems not to fl- flag up bernard's favorite subject but housing problems key workers people with multiple jobs multiple generation uh, families i mean you weren't doing that from a kind of you know we need to, we need to uh, lock it off but uh, but very much saying that, that that was something that should have been dealt with from a policy point of view earlier yeah i think it was just, you know, where did we go wrong with Delta? I think we could have eliminated it. But in order to eliminate it, we had to assume we were going to lose. Mm. And then we had a chance. If we assumed we were going to sit at home for four weeks and it would be delivered to us um, on a platter, we were going to lose. We were kind of like the All Blacks turning up to a game, you know, like in 2007 playing France. Is that one of the many times they choked? I can't, I don't remember. That. Oh, yeah, that's a exactly, that's that's yeah. a dangerous word, Peter. That's a very dangerous word. Yeah, no, I think it's it's very apposite the choking of the All Blacks. I was actually discussing that with your friend Pete today. Um, but and and um, Rodney, what about the you know the the I have been uh, I've learnt a lot. I felt in the last six months or so from John Tamahiri and and from uh, um, yeah. Uh, Rawari Jansen about the different health outcomes that are there for Maori and the ability to reach those hard-to-reach groups. They seem to have they, they, those groups seem to have solved that problem on the government's behalf. Is that is that fair? Uh, well, I think that's that's sorry. Just one second here. I'm a bit of a klutz. I've just dropped no, no. I've I've dropped mine all the time when I'm running too, which is very embarrassing. Yes. Yeah. You well, wouldn't I believe the places I'd had to retrieve my earbuds from. That's one of the really positive things to come out of Mm. this. And that's the positive thing to come out of the Delta outbreak is that Wellington did mess it up and was forced to acknowledge that they messed it up and were forced to delegate to community groups. Yeah. And, you know, we saw some fantastic work done in Auckland by both Māori and Pacifica groups and across the country. And I think that will carry over. That's, if you like, that's the benefit from COVID. And that's the benefit from that, the mess up last year. Rodney, in, in my spin-off bulletin this week, I talked about, you know, based on, based not on off, off the top of my head, because I would never do that, um, really interesting reports about whether the pand- whether we now move from a pandemic to endemic phase. You've seen the, the Spanish prime minister effectively ask the WHO to re- reclassify it as an endemic WHO says it's way too early for that. There is this weird or interesting sort of epidemiological um, question, not to turn you into an epidemiologist rather than a humble economist, but because um, there's no such thing as a humble epidemiologist anymore. But the idea that um, Omicron will almost snuff out potentially um, uh, COVID or, or turn it into a, something that's much more manageable. What's, what's your sense of that? Or do you have a sense of that? Yeah, well, that's kind of, you know, outside my area of expertise, but one hope. Oh, don't wait, this never stops us. Just dive in. Yeah, okay. So that's the, that, the great hope is that's the direction of travel, isn't it? That this yep. is, that maybe the Russian flu was 
the coronavirus that gave birth to the common cold. You know, the Russian flu from 1893 to 1896 actually coincided with the economic depression. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That, mm. um, you know, that's the hope, that this is kind of a Russian flu type cycle and that's the path we're on. This yeah, it was also very interesting. See, I, I was reading, there was a very good piece, I think, in the FT, which I, I've, I've again put in that bulletin um, and, and linked it from the chat on the right-hand side, that we think of the Russian, of the Spanish flu ending in 19, 1918, but in fact it continued, you know, with significant numbers of deaths right up to 1921. Yes, you know, so ironically, the reason I was so prepared to, to jump on SARS initially back in 2003 and kept all the data and my family was there, they all left Hong Kong quickly, um, was because my grandfather had been a medic in the New Zealand mm -hmm. Army all the way through the Spanish flu. And because he never fell sick, his, his discharge was delayed. And so he was in camp in Burnham right up to 1920. Good Lord. Because it kept on going wow. on. And so he was held back for two years. And is it clear why he didn't get it? Uh, well, I'm hoping that there's some invincible genes. I, I was thinking that. Yes, exactly. You're, you're t you've got you've got you've got bigger t bigger T cells than the rest of us, which is yeah, which well, is not being much. Yeah, fantastic. I'm sorry. It's it's uh, it's a fanta fantastic discussion on this, uh, Rodney. But I wondered because you're there, and um, I'm always interested in what you have to say about um, the global economy because you keep an eye on it. We're at an inflection point, it seems, with inflation globally. And this week, the European Central Bank seemed to finally, well, not capitulate, but uh, moves closer to the other central banks, which are now quite worried about inflation. What's, what's your view from this part of the world about what's going on globally with inflation and, and how central banks are responding to it? So I always try and frame things from a historical perspective. What drew me to doing economics was the economic history. Um, then I decided to do economics. The, and, and so I look at my own career and what you saw were all kind of similar, people of our age, uh, Peter, these old gray-haired guys. Uh, As opposed um, to the young thrusters like Bernard. Yeah. Oh, well, no, I've got plenty of gray, the, gray as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it was globalization from, from 1990, you know, the emergence of China. Of, we went through the sequence, you know, we had Japan in the 70s and Taiwan, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong. Then we had the Southeast Asian, Thailand and Malaysia, China entering the, the global supply chain and this proliferation of goods and the tendency for goods prices to fall. Mm. You know, places like New Zealand completely gave up our manufacturing sector. Not that we really had one, but we had a you know import licensing that that, had that protected it. Yeah, yeah. In, in the seventies, you had to go to Fiji to buy a tape recorder. You know, so we went from that kind of shortage economy to an economy of excess. Are you talk about when my mother used to have to have to get some pounds in uh, and in order to buy a Ford Anglia. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, uh, and so. Um, we went from, you know, these closed, repressed economies to very open, globalized. We had China exporting deflation. And I think the mistake was, and I, this was someone I was talking today, the mistake was, unfortunately, it was inflation targeting. So inflation targeting was fantastic to bring inflation down. And then economists got obsessed with trying to keep inflation up. 
and we still see the we still feel the two percent to two two percent rate in the UK, for example. Yeah, whereas in the eighteen seventies, this sort of segue into a historical. No, no, we were we were just boys in the eighteen seventies. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but in the eighteen seventies, you know, we had the expansion, colonization of 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 New Zealand. That's a whole other topic to talk about. You know, the Maori economy that was taking shape. But you had the you know, confiscation of, of, of land and resources in New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, the United States. Oh, interesting. So you think that had a, that had a suppressing a suppressing effect on inflation as well? Exactly. Colonialization. So in the 70s, 80s, we had deflation. And <coughs> oh, interesting. And economists blamed that on lack of supply of gold. And Friedman argued, if only they could have had more gold, they wouldn't have had deflation. And so we ran the counter experiment of saying, well, now we have money, we can try and create inflation. Mm. In hindsight, we may have been better off allowing the deflation to happen and compensating workers who mm, were affected interesting. more aggressively, like in the US. If, if you had had more income support for those who lost their jobs, you wouldn't have had the opioid Trump or that phenomenon. Wow. So not only did, did what happened by trying to keep inflation up, it was kind of two sides. Not only did we fail to compensate those who were affected, which we did better in New Zealand, you know, the welfare state worked in New Zealand because, you know, the manufacturing place that lost manufacturing jobs did recover. The U.S. didn't have that. So not only did we have that fueling inequality and social distress in the U.S., we also had the central banks trying to keep inflation up and creating the asset booms that Bernard spends his time. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And that's... Any, any particular asset that Bernard <laughs> keeps talking about? Oh, I, no, I, I, I've got it. I've got it. <laughs> it's the reason I can do all this that... Um, uh, all of that, yeah, some of that. Your Kruger, it's your Kruger, it's your Krugerrands. My Krugerrands, yeah, yeah. Now, this is fascinating, this idea that maybe we could have just let the deflation happen and, as you say, compensate the, the losers. That seems to me the missing link here is over the last 20 years, we've done the globalisation, but we haven't really compensated the losers. And in the process of, you know, chase trying to, keep inflation up into this perfect 2% band, we've created all this uh, this money and uh, surprise, surprise, it's chasing asset prices higher and even starting to spill over into inflation. Now that we're here... What, now what, we have China, yes. Yeah, yeah but now it's, the story hasn't ended because now we have Xi Jinping. Mm. And we have people with nice segue, nice segue back to Xi Jinping. Excellent. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so people would say to me, you know, what's it like living in in Beijing? And this was 2018, 19 or 2018. And I'd say, you know, and I'd since 2017, the the political mood shifting, people I'd known for 20 years couldn't talk to me. I'd walk past in the street and would say hi, but not stop and talk. There were cameras. And I'd say, I sit at home and by myself and watch these German movies because that was the mood <laughs> you felt like in beijing yeah, you were yeah. living in east berlin mm. and, and that was the political direction but that political direction had economic consequences with china's turning inward mm. you have a loss of confidence among younger people they don't want to have babies um population decline is starting to accelerate and will gather pace vietnam's already full i mean vietnam's the third largest exporter in mm-hmm. asia um it's already over. So, you, do you think? Are you saying that there, you think there'll be an inflationary effect from China as well? Yeah, Being because with, that whole what I was talking about the huge expansion in goods supply yeah. is over. And so, you know, what does that mean? 
it, it just means that goods prices now rise. Yeah, how interesting. But do, what did you make of? And, I, and I'm sure you possibly even had a hand in it. Um, just to be to be clear to everybody on the call that you you both worked for in the past and and still advise George Soros. I mean, George made some very very interesting comments this week about the destiny of China and the destiny of Xi Jinping and said that she could be brought low by the collapse of Chinese property prices, partly because of the amount that everybody's got invested in it, the, the number of young people who have to you know, buy a place off the plan, as it were, and also the fact that um, uh, um, civil civil society, civil um, councils and so on, make all of their revenue from, from selling property. I thought that was a very telling set of remarks. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I still... Um, liaise closely, so uh, yeah, there was some work reflected in, in, in that. Yeah, it, it's where the you know George Soros is, is, is impatient and wants to see see she leave office, and I think he's right that we need to see a major shift like that to get back on a better track. But I'm not mm -hmm. so optimistic that we'll see that. So, so let's um, assume that she's in there for you know the foreseeable future. Um, he seems reasonably healthy, and uh, we've had all of this um, money created all around the world. Um, for the want of a much better phrase, how does this all end? How do we get out of this? It never ends, Bernard. Jesus, it just we just roll through it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we have for thirty years. But I don't know. I think this time is different. Because my my well, base. Sorry, so, wait, wait a second, but got to ask them the quick. How how is it different, Rodney? Because of the ability to create inflation, we've never created inflation before, and to the extent that China continues to turn inward and the population contracts, and we're not going to have the supply easy supply of goods that we've become accustomed to, mm -hmm. um, we're going to have inflation. So let's play out. And the central banks have produced so much money. Yeah. So so let's play this out. So central banks, who still seem very determined to uh, get inflation to around two percent, inflation takes off and stays taking off. They react with quite high interest rates. That surprises a few people in the financial markets and sees some sort of um, asset price shock. And then what happens? And that's that's the thing I'm interested in because my my uh, yeah, gut. So my are gut, you asking him to forecast now? No. I'm no, just sort of playing out the, the scenarios. I come back. <laughs> no, in scenarios. And I think it, this is really complex because it's kind of, it's a multiple equilibria, as Larry Summers likes to say. It's like, you know, there's two states of the world. Do we actually create ongoing inflation and, and wage share starts to finally rise um, and inflation becomes entrenched? And so the asset story, the debt, uh, the, the the balance sheet recession that we kind of live in fear of, that this time is different and we, we, we're not going to get a balance sheet recession because the gap between, if you look at the UN, United States, the gap between inflation and the Fed funds, the short end rate, has only been this wide twice in 1919 and 1951. Mm. Yeah. And then it only lasted 13 months because that was temporary. If this proves more persistent, and what we saw in the 70s is they never caught up with, they raised to the rate of inflation, but they never really got ahead of it. Right. Actually, Rodney, does it? Sorry, carry on. So, so, um, so that happens. Uh, let's say there's some big slump on markets. My assumption is that the central banks will intervene again to well, bail it out. Well, I think there's an issue. I, 
Yeah, so my my take on that is, is the story of a man called Robert Kaplan. And I think when they write the history of this time, he may be a key key part of this. Now, Robert Kaplan is president of the Dallas Fed, and he was from Goldman Sachs. And he sat as president of the Dallas Fed. He was a voting member of the FRMC, and he was speculating in U.S. equities, buying futures, uh, yes. and uh, trading yeah. equities in large amounts around FRMC decisions. And so I just wonder, my little idea is that Robert Kaplan has killed the Fed put because now the Fed can't step in to save markets because of the politics. Interesting. Really? Of you think own, that, that would stop in a, way, it's, in, a, in a way, its own politics, which are essentially around a, a potential corruption. Wow. So that's um, that's because that's I, I think that if there is some crisis and markets um, freeze up again and it looks like there's some sort of... Um, flow-on effect from markets into the global economy, the Fed just intervenes again uh, under but pressure. Haven't we, haven't, I'm not so sure. I know yeah. because I think this time we have inflation. And so they face a fundamental choice. If the inflation doesn't come off, what allowed them to intervene was the low inflation, the deflation. If we don't have that this time, the case for intervention is much harder, particularly when FOMC members have been seen to benefit financially yeah. from right. the Fed. Right, right. And, and, and with higher inflation, the cost of intervention is going to be much higher as well, right? right? Yes. Yeah, well, so they've got no limit on how much they can print. Posted, yeah. yeah, so Sam just posted out Russell Napier's view that you just end up with financial repression and keep going um, to, to these lower rates. Uh, we maintain low rates. I, I see. We're at a big test. It's possible we end up in that world, but it's also possible we create inflation. Um, and can I ask you? A, can I ask you an econ economics one hundred and one question, which which um, uh, somebody very uh, Paul Kennedy very kindly asked on on the side as well, which I was thinking of today. Can I've been? And I, you know, one of the good things about being old is you know I've been through quite a few. Um, slumps, inflationary surges, and stock market crashes, and so on, and never made money out of any of them. Of course, and only only lost money more or less. But um, it is interesting that wage inflation it always lags. Is that because, or almost always lags? Is that because wage inflations are so politically directed and and can be suppressed that way? That we, you know, you very rarely do you get a snapback in wage inflation. No, I think the, the battle between wage, I'm going to start sound Marxist here, but it's... Um, well, you, you do that and I'll sound libertarian, so that'll be fine. Yeah. We'll match in the middle. Yeah. Is the, the battle between kind of profit share and wage share. And post-war, we had a big rise in wage share that lasted really into the 1980s. Hmm. And since then, with the reforms, you know, in, in New Zealand was all about a decline in, in, in wage share and a rise in profit share. And have we finally reached that historical tipping point and my my kind of view is we have and that's why john others from bloomberg kind of put it succinctly this week where he said there's a you know there's a big gap between perceptions of inflation between kind of main street and wall street now the financial mm. market you know main street it's shifting the ground is shifting you've got yeah and it's very interesting market. i think in the uk at the moment we've got energy prices pushing inflation dramatically and also that immediately i mean i don't know whether you noticed today but the uk um increased the minimum forecast electricity price for the average home to by 54 percent to 595 pounds and you know that's really going to have a very significant effect it's going to push the average 
person's uh, bill up to something like £2,000 a year. Um, it's a very significant change when, when, when wages have been very, very low. And so it is immediately, you know, I think the energy, this energy problem in Europe, which will be aggravated by Ukraine, and this is an excellent segue to Ukraine in a minute, but we're going to take another little detour back to China in a second. But, you know, it's a, there's a lot of pressures on, um, on Main Street or on ordinary people, as you say. Yeah, I think these, these history goes in big cycles, and are we at a, a, a tipping point now? If wage here starts to rise, inflation is going to be more persistent. So, um, um, Rodney, just you—you you mentioned to me the other day, just speaking of Marxists, and I, I do think it would be. I know you don't want to make a long-term long-term uh, modelling of China, but you mentioned to me that that um, my view that uh, engagement with China is critical. It's really important. You've got to just—we can't just isolate them was in fact incompatible with the Maoist direction that you felt she has taken and that, and that re-engagement, globalisation is, is the past. Yeah, I just think Xi Jinping has a vision. Mm. You know, um, Putin wants to restore the Soviet Union in a geopolitical mm. sense. She wants to restore communism to China. They have different objectives. Mm. And so what it, where do you think things are? So you've got, you've got a really interesting situation for Xi at the moment where he is literally, it would appear, talking to talking to Putin constantly about Ukraine. Uh, Putin is going to the opening of the, of the Winter Winter Olympics and I think will be one of the, was a hilarious picture of Putin meeting um, Viktor Orban the other day um, with a distance of about 40 feet. They had about a 40-foot long table between them. Uh, I imagine that, that um, there will be various barge poles rolled out for him to have a connection to Xi because Xi hasn't, been outside China, China since the start of COVID, but really interesting interaction. You've got the Olympics, you've got Chinese New Year, the the, the very great difficulty in people travelling again for Chinese New Year. Give us a sense of what you think is happening in China in the next couple of months. Well, I just think the big thing is zero COVID. You know, the FDA has covered it well. Ed White, New Zealand journalist, mm. um, up and coming journalist in Asia. Oh, I hate up and coming New Zealand journalists. Okay. But worth following, he did a very nice piece on zero COVID. The new Jamil, since we lost Jamil to Brussels. Oh, yeah. We, um, yeah, he did a nice piece on zero COVID. You know, the. Um, Zero COVID also serves a political purpose of isolating the people. The number, the amazing chart that people are sending around of the number of new passports in China mm -hmm. is lowest since like the 1980s. Wow. Um, it just, it's this turning inward. And zero COVID is the device but, to, to do that. And can they actually contain it? Because um, the virus doesn't respect Xi Jinping. Um, can they really? continue to eliminate it i suppose you can eliminate every everything if you lock everyone up completely but can they do it yeah i believe not we look at hong kong yeah um, and hong kong hasn't blown up yet but it's got hundreds mm. a day now um cases are rising just like here in new zealand uh, this is too infectious and i think eventually it'll break out and the problem with sinovac you know is just not effective Mm. Um, again, certainly wasn't effective against Delta and it's not effective against Omicron. So is that one of the reasons you see China continuing to slow and um, and not being able to provide that extra supply, which has helped keep a lid on inflation for the last 10, 20 years? 
Yeah, that's for this year, for 20, 2022, absolutely. But there's also a longer-term issue as the private sector, and there's a big north-south divide in China, and Xi Jinping is on the northern side. I think there's some other themes we need to to um, I- I explore. And someone sent me an image of, you know, the CCTV has this annual spring mm. festival TV spectacle. And... Um, there's a huge north-south divide in northern provinces like 60 percent of people watched it and in the south barely 15 percent of people yeah, watched right. it. <laughs> so you know hong kong is also about the north-south divide I mean, interesting getting much more complex um but anyway i think with zero covid you know and so anyway i'm just saying you'll just get less investment private sector businessmen who drove the dynamism in china now are not confident you've made some money it's generational you're in your mid 50s to mid 60s you've ridden this amazing boom you hunker down you don't invest you just try and survive and you certainly don't criticize the criticize the central bank yes don't <laughs> criticize the government and you know yeah and, you know but jack ma may have been going down at that point anyway yeah but you know when we read that speech when, so peter's referring to a speech that jack ma gave in october 2020 and when I read that speech, I thought, wow, it's over. Yeah. I'll be knocking at his door now. So we were going to segue back to Russia. Uh, I think we should we should go there. Just um, on the Russian-Ukraine situation, uh, um, what what do you think uh, is going to play out there and what should we watch for? Well, now you're really getting me off-piste. Ah. Um Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> On to Europe. Where's Europe? Um, yeah, I just think what I said before, I, but, you know, I've studied the Soviet Union in the sense of understanding the Communist Party. Um, and and I, I just think, you know, it's again this, this clash and this long misunderstanding and how sort of the West handled it, the expansion of NATO. It's very complicated. We're, you know, the West is in a no-win situation um, because people aspire to be free and um, don't want to be under kind of a communist authoritarian. So I, it's just, what, where does Putin take it? Um, yeah, it was very, I, I was just listening and I, I'll put up the link to it. There's a very, very good Economist Asks podcast today with um, uh, the uh, former national security chief of Ukraine, Alexander Daniluk. And he was arguing, and it's also been interesting, you've seen this with Zelensky, uh, the, the, the president of Ukraine, that he's that they're trying to keep things calm domestically while harnessing enough international support so that Putin sees that the costs of doing this uh, are very high. But there's the, you know he he puts the risk of war at thirty percent, uh, whereas I would put the risk of um, uh, a large chunk of eastern Ukraine being clipped off um, possibly as soon as the winter winter Olympics are finished as very very high. I mean, of course, I don't know as nearly as much about Ukraine as the Ukrainian former former Minister of Security, but you know, I can sit here in Huen uh, Bay and speculate. Yeah, and annexation of Donbas. Yeah, uh, a formal annexation. Yeah, there's there's definite form. Yeah, exactly. I, I just have a the, the point he made about that though, which I thought was quite interesting, was Putin knows that the costs are going to be quite high. Russia doesn't have any particular. You know, have you know, Russia will find ways to deal with with uh, um, sanctions. Um, and um, that in order to make it all worthwhile, he needed to go big. I just, I just can't see 
an actual invasion that takes you down all the way into, I mean, not that it's all the way necessarily, but takes you down into Kiev and looks to replace the government. I mean, they've, they've been very clever at trying to replace the government in previous times with, you know, not least poisoning the potential leader of the opposition with, um, with um, what the hell was it? Um, the stuff that made his face go all weird. But, you know, they're, they're, they're not averse to all sorts of unorthodox methods short of war. Yeah, um, you know the ball is in their court, but it's does he put his military in? The, you know, it's very hard to calibrate. But the reason that he's in in Beijing is to find ways around Swift to yeah, you know, exactly. We discussed this last week. Yeah, yeah. exactly that. Yeah. Actually, on, on that issue of um, Swift and you know, uh, uh, let's explain quickly what Swift is. So, so Swift mm-hmm. is the my understanding is Swift is the international communication system which allows banks in various countries to move um, money from one country to the next. Russia and China are still connected to it, but it's partially controlled or could be controlled from uh, um, America. And cutting Russia off from SWIFT could be quite problematic. But you're saying, Rodney, that um, the Russians and the Chinese are looking to disconnect themselves from that or ensure themselves against that uh, that that happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, China became aware of this issue when they tried to do Belt and Road, mm. and they ended up doing Belt and Road in dollars. Uh-huh. And, and that's the source of distress for economies such as Sri Lanka. Um, and so, you know, we're running out of time, but, you know, the whole difference between the dollar system and the sterling system and how the sterling system worked. There was a reason we had crap British cars here in the 1960s, <laughs> and that's because we had a... Excuse me. London <laughs> ...that we could only use yeah, to buy... To buy Ford Anglias and and, uh, and, exactly. and um, Triumph Heralds. And the ideal system for China is to create a sterling system, not mm. to look to recreate the dollar. And, um, you know, Russia could be part of that. And so I think there is a big... There's a, there is a master strategy here work that we can't see. Uh, I think that's that's extremely interesting. In fact, there was a very good, uh, I I was listening to another podcast the other day because I basically have no life other than listening to podcasts. And no, I'm not going to give you one, um, Mr. Anderson, because otherwise uh, you'll know where I get everything that I say. But there was a very good Melvin Bragg uh, analysis of the the gold standard. Um, and, and, And going off it, of course, created the situation we're in now with fiat currencies. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating time in the in the history of um, money and the economy and everything else. So, hey, Bernard, what haven't we covered? Uh, well, New Zealand housing. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but that's right. We, we can save that for another day. We're right yeah. at the end of our hour. And, um, yeah, we haven't we had really, any, any of these we, buggers saying that's boring. Thank no, God. no, and we really, time. really appreciate um, Rodney's time. So um, to go out with uh, Peter. Are we, escape- are we doing gin? Well, we'll do the skateboarding dog story, but yep. we'll also talk about gin briefly. And Rodney, I know, may want to come in on this. So uh, having we had, we had a discussion with, about gin and, and tonic a couple of weeks ago which became quite popular, oddly. And I have to say that I found a new gin the other day called Strange. Uh, I was on Waiheke. It isn't a Waiheke one. I have had the Waiheke one, which was excellent. It's apparently made with plankton and, you know, sea mold and um, whatever comes out of the Haraki Gulf, which is delicious. But this one is called Strange, and it's made from Sauvignon Blanc grapes, which I, which I, and I bought it really as an experiment. And I can tell you, it just about took my head off. 
took the top of my head off. And had I been smoke, had I been smoking near it, I'm, I'm pretty sure the entire bottle would have caught fire. Um, it is it is a a, a, to- a gin that is much more like grappa than a gin. So um, you might want to you might want to check um, you might want to check that out. Fantastic. I'm just going to put a link, the, link up. Yeah, and the um, uh, skateboarding gold. Uh, the skateboarding dog one is a fabulous story that I shared with you this week, Bernard, from military.com, which is, uh, you, you might recall that Donald Trump created the new wing, uh, as it were, not to, not to have too much of a pun, of the United States military, which is the Space Force, uh, which has a very kind of Star Trek uniform and a Star Trek-y kind of uh, um uh, logo, which actually, and of course, Space Force is incredibly important, um, despite the humour of it, because, and in fact, there's a very good story in The Economist this week, last week about this, um, of the risks to the global satellite network, um, particularly the military satellite network is very, very clear, and I hadn't realised that that is essentially what Space Force's job is, is to, is to shield the American space um, satellite network and, and offer some defense. And we know, of course, China and, and Russia had both um, blown up their own, sent missiles up to attack, up missiles up to um, destroy their own satellites, um, leaving rather a lot of litter all over the rugby field up there. But the story about this was that a, um, a serving member of the Space Force uh, turned, up, turned up at uh, Spirit Airlines uh, baggage check-in and noticed that they had a sign saying that active service people would get free baggage um, uh, on their on their planes. He showed them his uh, Space Force uh, uniform, his ID, showed them the website, and the attendant just said, "I don't believe it. It doesn't exist." So the Space the Space Force, you know, is it doesn't quite get. But it was, I, I loved that it was something uh, as as basic as um, you know, as in the US, where where everybody believes in military service and so on. As uh, was that the Space Force people couldn't get his baggage checked on a 737. Yes. Could you take this bag to infinity and beyond? Thank you very much. Exactly. <laughs> nice spot. That's very good, Bernard. By your standards, that's extremely good. good. Um, hey, what's the gin situation in your house, Rodney? Uh, well, we, we're not big gin drinkers, but we do support island gin from, from Great Barrier. Yes. Ah, yeah, well, that's yes. the one with the beautiful bottle like a, um, like a Kenner, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, well, when you say supporting it, have you got shares in it? No, no, no. We just buy a lot of it and use it as gifts. Yeah, because well, uh, funny enough, but Bernard, you should. Your friend Pitt uh, and I had lunch today, and he uh, recommended Island Gin as ah, well. So um, I'm going to take out a mortgage and, and go and buy some good. at some point. No, no, um, that's that's excellent. Yeah. I hope we all get a chance to have a proper gin and tonic together. Maybe when we do this again next time. I'd like to thank so much. Oh, uh, you're trying to shut us down? I, well, because it's five o'clock. Okay. <laughs> There's gin to be drunk. Um, Rodney, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real treat um, uh, taking a romp around the world of um, of uh, COVID modelling, uh, China's demography, and uh, the future of the of life, the universe, and everything. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and yeah. thank you, Peter, for and, helping to arrange it. And we have to go and find another middle-aged, grey-haired man to appear next week. <laughs> Yes. Oh, this okay. is bad, bad, bad they're, they're not in short supply. That's, that's right. Hey, thank Thanks, you. Rodney. Thank you so much. And I shall play Thanks the jazzy music uh, to see us out of here. Kakita, no, everyone. We'll see you next week on the Hoon, on the Kaku. I'm Bernard Hickey.